This episode of the Inside Oz podcast is dedicated to the memory of Granville Adams, known to Oz fans as Zahira Reef, who passed away October 10th, 2021, at the age of 58. On behalf of Oz fans worldwide, our thoughts are with those who knew Granville, as well as his surviving family at this difficult time. This series of the Inside Oz podcast is brought to you by Dear Anxious, the new single from Max Feinstein. Dear Anxious, the new single from Max Feinstein, available for streaming now on Spotify, Apple Music, and all other streaming platforms. This is a statement on behalf of the Inside Oz podcast. During Series 3 of the Inside Oz podcast, certain episodes featured a recurring gag in which the disgraced comedian, actor, and author, William Henry Cosby Jr., known professionally as Bill Cosby, was referred to as being a convicted sex offender following Cosby's 2018 conviction of aggravated indecent assault and his subsequent incarceration. The following episode of the Inside Oz podcast, Season 4, Episode 2, Obituaries, was recorded prior to Wednesday, June 30th, 2021, the day on which Mr. Cosby's conviction was overturned by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court and on which Mr. Cosby was released from SCI Phoenix in Skippuck Township, Pennsylvania. Any references to Mr. Cosby being a convicted sex offender on episodes following this date have been edited to include an audio tone, indicated as so. Future episodes that have already been recorded using this previously mentioned reference have been edited accordingly, while future episodes will no longer refer to Bill Cosby the convicted sex offender, but Bill Cosby the alleged Thank you, and enjoy the show. This is Ernie Hudson Jr., and you're listening to Inside Oz. Sister, you do not want to see my anger. My anger is massive, all-encompassing. Being accused of three bitches. Disloyal, dishonest, disrespectful. I don't disagree that there's evil in the world. I do disagree that we're powerless against it. You know, if I was a girl, you get tough. She's a girl, so you be butt-ass ugly. She's getting married? To a Bobby? No, no, not a Bobby, Tim. He's a guard. He guards the queen. Yeah, well, then I can see how they've got a lot in fucking common! Try to find the common thing that binds us all. Pride. Pride is the common thing. See, we all of us back there. Hello everyone and welcome to Inside Oz, the original Oz Review Podcast. As always, I'm your host Neil Thompson. Great to have you all back once again and thank you everyone for the feedback for the Series 4 opener. 
That opening episode was very similar to the one from Series 3 in that we had a whole load of new people join the show, and if I was to try and introduce them all in one go, that episode would have ran much longer than I would have liked. So I've tried to evenly distribute some of those character introductions, as well as some from this episode, over the course of the character's time on the show. Today, though, we're going to be looking back at Series 4, Episode 2, Obituaries. Holding an 8.2 on IMDb, the episode was written by Tom Fontana, with additional writing by Sunil Nair and Bradford Winters. This episode also saw Sean Whitesell, previously seen playing Donald Groves back in Series 1, return to the show in the role of executive story editor. Since leaving Oz as an actor, Sean had begun to transition away from acting and had earned writing credits on Homicide Life on the Street, writing 12 episodes during the show's 6th and 7th seasons, as well as writing on UPN's The Beat, which until now I didn't realise was a Tom Fontana and Barry Levinson vehicle. I'm not sure if the show was ever broadcast here in the UK or not, which is probably why that slipped under the radar. The episode was directed by guest director Kenneth Fink. Getting his start as both first unit director and a producer on 1978's The Hitter, Kenneth's breakthrough came with his 1985 documentary, The Work I've Done, which was nominated for the Grand Jury Prize at the Sundance Film Festival. Making the move into directing for TV in 1989, Kenneth directed episodes of Saturday Night with Connie Chung, where he also acted as a producer, as well as the TV movies The Vernon John Story and Tall, Dark and Deadly, where he again earned a producer credit. In 1996, Kenneth directed episodes of Nash Bridges on CBS, as well as an episode of Kindred The Embraced, where he directed Eric King, who we introduced last episode. Between 1995 and 1998, Kenneth directed eight episodes of Homicide Life on the Street, as well as directing episodes of Millennium on Fox, two episodes of Get Real in 1999, and in 2000 directed episodes of Third Watch and Dawson's Creek, before directing Here on Oz. The episode was originally broadcast on July 19th, 2000, a day on which Russian President Vladimir Putin met with North Korean Supreme Leader Kim Jong-il, in which Kim proposed to abandon North Korea's missile program if other states helped to provide technology for peaceful space research, the Supreme Leader later admitting to the whole proposal being one huge joke, the US announced plans to offer $1 billion in loans to sub-Saharan nations to help finance the purchase of AIDS drugs and medical services. Measures were approved at the World Diamond Congress in Antwerp, Belgium to track diamonds as well as the penalties imposed on dealers whose buying and selling of so-called blood diamonds helped support the funding of civil wars. While in Okinawa, Japan, over 25,000 demonstrators surrounded the US Air Force's Kadena Air Base, protesting the American presence at the G8 summit in Nago. Obituaries. A man or a woman lives their entire life. They work and love and dream and laugh and cry. Then they die. And then somebody who they don't even know, who's never met them once, boils their entire life down to a paragraph or two in a local newspaper. That's only if they achieve something, something that the editor thinks is important. Now, if they're real movers, real shakers, maybe they get two columns. Maybe they get a photo from 1974. And if they've achieved nothing, they get buried at the bottom of the page. 
or ignore it completely. Kick off with Act 1 with Augustus lying in state detailing how when one passes, somebody that they never knew gets to boil their entire existence down to one or two paragraphs, coupled with using a bedsheet to show projections from the obituary section of a local newspaper, all of which is intercut with flashbacks from the climactic scene of the previous episode, finishing with Tarant splashing his brains against Adebisi's pod glass. We've seen these projections against objects and services during Augustus' monologues before, so it's not necessarily anything new, but I quite like this opening. They always seem better whenever Augustus has something to do within them, rather than just delivering his lines to camera. Coming out of the flashback, we see the bloodstains being washed away as Adebisi sits on the toilet, listening to his CD player and reading a magazine, as Leo details that Tarant shot a total of seven people before turning the gun on himself. He explains to Murphy that Tarant in fact killed four people, although we only saw him kill three. The extra man is inmate Lou Raff, who is a character that's never shown prominently on camera, so very little is known about him, but he was either an M-City inmate or one of the Aryan mailroom workers who ended up getting caught in the crossfire once Tarant got a little trigger happy. Leo reiterates the other three deaths, Kenny Jr. and Officer Howard, and provides an inmate of the other three inmates currently at Benchley Memorial. Saran and Ahmed, who are most likely just background characters, are due back soon due to only suffering superficial wounds, but Keller is set to be away for a little while longer due to suffering some internal damage. In reality, this was a way of writing Keller off the show for the time being due to Christopher Maloney's filming commitments on Law & Order Special Victims Unit, with that show set to return to screens three months after this episode aired. With that show having a longer production cycle due to the number of episodes per season, Maloney was filming both shows at the same time, doing his filming for Oz during the day, and then filming SVU at night time. Unlike the situation where Edie Falco had to leave the show due to other commitments, Maloney was able to work both shows due to their close proximity. Oz was still filming in the old biscuit factory in Chelsea Market on 9th Avenue at this point, while SVU filmed at Pier 59 Studios less than half a mile away. Despite being able to walk the half mile distance between both shows' bases, Maloney's presence on Oz, similar to that in sections of Series 3, see him reduced to only appearing very briefly in certain episodes, this being the only episode in the first half of this series in which he doesn't appear. Murphy says to Leo that he keeps asking himself how a gun got into Oz, seemingly blaming himself for what happened, but Leo tells him that he intends to find out, and gathers a number of the black inmates in the library to try and get to the bottom of things. Speaking on everyone's behalf, Saeed says that they don't know where the gun came from, but Arif soon joins the conversation, asking why Leo is questioning the black inmates, stating that it was a white man's finger on the trigger. Attempting to keep it from becoming another race issue, Leo says that he intends to speak to everyone, as Adebisi approaches from the back of the room, declaring that whether Leo finds the truth or not, one thing is clear, M-City is out of control, and that Mamanus needs to go. Leo as he should do, calls Adebisi on his words about who's in charge here, but Adebisi says that he's just pointing out reality. He gets support for his claims from Arif, who says that Mamanus was lax, and therefore the responsibility lies with him, and finishes by saying that the press want answers, and the public wants someone to blame, as Leo thanks them for their concern. Putting himself front and centre like this deflects some of the attention away from Adebisi, and is a good way to throw Leo off the scent, 
Obviously, Adebisi has no remorse for anything that he does, but rather than hiding in the shadows, making his presence known to Leo makes him appear less guilty than someone who just keeps their head down. Another example of the smarter, more calculated Adebisi here. Arriving back at M-City, Saeed mentions to both Arif and Adebisi how they looked very chummy in the meeting, and that it's rare to see them both in such levels of agreement. Adebisi asks whether or not that means that Saeed wants McManus to be fired, but rather than give an answer, Saeed breaks off to the side with Arif, asking him what's going on. Arif asks Saeed why he cares, reminding Saeed that he had said that he had lost his taste for power, and as a result is out of this conversation. While they seemed to focus last episode on Saeed grabbing his old clothes as a way of marking his return to the Muslim group, he only actually seemed to wear them whilst preparing Hamid's body for the funeral, almost like he was carrying out his final act as leader of the Muslims. Since then, he's been wearing a grey polo shirt, while the rest of the group continue to wear the black t-shirts and coloured caps, perhaps as a tribute to their fallen leader, but also signifying that Saeed needs to earn his place amongst them. Above Saeed, we see Poet leaning on a railing reciting a new poem about Kenny and Junior's deaths, much to the annoyance of the rest of the inmates who are telling him to quiet down, and I particularly like Boos Malice complaining that he couldn't hear the TV. There's a really good touch here as well, where we see that Poet is wearing what used to be Junior's hat in memory of his fallen friend. While Poet did associate with Kenny, he always seemed to be more of a friend of Junior's, and that they came as a double act, especially after both of them were scalded by Adebisi, so Poet taking Junior's death harder than Kenny's is understandable. Adebisi approaches Poet and reminds him that while Kenny and Junior may be dead, they are still alive, with Poet accusing Kenny and Junior of having no heart. Claiming to have the heart of a lion, Adebisi asks Poet to help him revenge Kenny and Junior instead of crying for them. Which isn't grammatically wrong, but just sounds weird. It sounds like he should be saying avenge, not revenge. Poet asks who can they take revenge on, seeing as Tehran already blew his own brains out. As Adebisi tells him, against them, pointing out across M-City to its inhabitants, calling them white bastards. Poet reminds Adebisi that it wasn't a white bastard who poured hot soup on his face, but Adebisi tells him that that was then, and this is now, and that if Poet had been standing an inch to the left, it would have been he who wound up dead, and that Kenny would be Adebisi's new best friend. So as I alluded to last week, this is Adebisi in somewhat of a rebuilding phase, having got rid of the hot-tempered Kenny, and looking to bring Poet more into the fold, as well as forming a loose alliance with Arif. Poet himself is caught between a rock and a hard place, as he obviously doesn't trust Adebisi one iota, and rightfully so considering their past, but with Kenny and Junior gone, he's left with no real allies to depend on. He'll probably have some acquaintances with whoever he sells drugs to, but no one that he'd be willing to go into battle with. The only person that comes close to that right now is someone that he hates, and only tolerated due to his connection with Kenny. Down on the M-City floor, Chico and El Cid are walking through, talking about how the CEOs are trying to figure out how Tarant got the gun. And El Cid tells Chico that he saw Adebisi with the gun the day before the shooting. Asking if Adebisi knows about El Cid seeing him with a weapon, El Cid says that he doesn't think that he knows yet, but he most likely will soon enough. They continue to walk through M-City, past Augustus who sat watching the TV, which is playing an ad for Alva Case's campaign for governor. Integrity. It's what sets real leaders apart from typical politicians. One man running for governor has real integrity. Alva Case, activist lawyer, law school dean, 
state bar president. Nobody questions his integrity. So after the riots at Oswald Prison, to whom did even James Devlin turn to sort it out? That's right. Alva Case. Unquestioned integrity for a change. Leo enters his office to find Wendy already sat there waiting for him. She skips the pleasantries and tells Leo that Manners has to go, something which Leo says seems to be the mantra of the week. Wendy shows Leo a newspaper with the headline, Prison Shooting Leaves Four Dead, which she describes as above the fold, referring to the headline's prominent position when the paper is displayed, which I never knew to be a thing in print media, but yeah, makes total sense. Leo tries to brush it off, saying that he can handle some negative press, but Wendy says that if he's going to be Lieutenant Governor, he needs a scapegoat, and that he has to fire McManus. Still trying to smooth things over, Leo says that now isn't the time, but Wendy brings up McManus' past history of screwing things up, mentioning the riot in particular, which Leo says wasn't Tim's fault, and we've spoken before about how you know that Leo is being sincere when he refers to McManus as Tim. It's sort of an unofficial showing of respect. Not sugarcoating things, Wendy says that the entire history of M-City has been a disaster, and that Mamanis is a weak, limp-wristed liberal who needs to be tossed out with the garbage, and then leaves the office. The positioning of Leo and Wendy in this scene was interesting. Having Wendy sitting in Leo's chair when he arrives put her in control, when in reality she has no authority to fire Mamanis, but she sows the seed of doubt into Leo's mind about doing so by the way that she sells it, much like how she sold Leo on running for office last episode. Back at M-City, Officer Menio delivers McManus' mail to his office, but doesn't get a response, so leaves with a sarcastic you're welcome, McManus seemingly deep in contemplation about recent events. He has a look through his letters and finds one with an English postage stamp on it, turning it over and seeing that it's from Diane along with a return address. He's lucky that this got delivered, because if it did have to be returned, there was no way that it would have made it back, because 7F is not a British postcard, and would have most likely been sent to the dead letter office. Also, Knowlesby Close, at least that's what I think it says, not a real street in London. Closest I could find that resembles that was Naseby Close in South Hempstead, which you'll find between Finchley Road and Swiss Cottage on the Jubilee line. McManus opens up the letter, and we get to hear Edie Falco's voice once more on the show. This is one of two uncredited appearances for Edie following her exit from the show at the end of Series 3. And I'd actually forgotten about this one. I thought we only heard her on the other end of a phone call. I had no recollection of McManus receiving a letter. In her letter, Diane says that by now, Sister Pete will have given him the news, and that it must all seem so unreal to him, because it certainly does to her. She admits that she never dreamt that her life would turn around while on vacation, nor would she meet someone so loving or understanding like Carrie, the Bobby of whom McManus and Pete spoke of last episode. That's as much as McManus can take, though, as he crumples up the letter before reaching for a lighter and becoming a firestarter, twisted firestarter, setting the letter alight as we transition to Leo leading a staff meeting. He's detailing about picking someone to go on an upcoming state delegation to South Africa, a trip where someone will get to visit Pretoria Prison, as well as Zonda Water Prison in Cullinan, as well as go on safari. But things are soon interrupted by a once again late to these things McManus, and we never get to find out who goes on that trip although Ray and Pete certainly seemed interested. McManus wants to talk about something, but Leo tries to tell him that he's in the middle of a discussion. A distraught McManus demands the floor to speak about Officer Howard's memorial service, and says that it's important because Howard was killed right in front of him, as we get a prominent shot of McManus' trembling hands. 
Rather than cause more agitation, Leo lets McManus speak, who says that they should videotape the ceremony so that Howard's grandchildren can watch it back when they're older. That last line before we go to the next scene has a noticeably different quality to the sound, meaning that this may be a change from what was in the original script. The only other reason I can think for recording this line again in post-production would have been if it came out poorly on the day of filming. It could be one or the other, but my gut tells me that this is a changed line. Flash cut to the memorial service where Ray finishes up a prayer before handing over to McManus, who wants to not only say a few words, but takes this moment to decide he's going to honour Officer Howard with a song, and treats us all to a rendition of Camptown Races, a fitting tribute as Officer Howard apparently loved to bet on the horses. The song is met with a mixture of general indifference, such as Officer Mustache shaking his head at the back, Leo's look of, holy shit Tim, what are you doing? And people trying not to piss themselves laughing, Lepresti and Claire being the main two. Back in his office, Leo is packing up his things to head home, but before he can go, Pete and Gloria want to talk with him about McManus, feeling that he's distressed and needs help, something which Leo concurs with and that he told McManus directly. They ask where McManus is now, but Leo doesn't know, so they plan to swing by McManus' house tonight, and if they have no joy, they'll catch up with him tomorrow. Leo, though, says that they won't be able to do that, because he's just got through firing McManus, as we get an Augustus vignette detailing the time the newspaper got the deceased name wrong, against a projection of McManus packing a box in his office and leaving, taking one last look at M-City as he goes to close out Act 1. Come in. Leo, we want to talk about Tim. I've had all the discussion about Tim McManus I'm going to have. He's clearly in distress. Yes. He needs help. That's what I told him. So you've seen him? We've been looking everywhere. He just left. Well, where'd he go? I have no idea. All right, we'll try him at home tonight. No, well, if not, we'll just see him here tomorrow. Right. I don't think so. Why not? I just fired him. Good night. I saw this obituary once of a guy I knew, and the newspaper had misspelled his name. They misspelled his goddamn motherfucking name. And that's it. It ain't no going back. It's not like they're gonna get his name right the next time he dies. No. That edition of the newspaper is going in the archives. And this guy I know, his name, which is probably the thing he's proudest of in life, it's gonna be wrong. Forever and ever. Act 2 then gets underway opening up on a shot of an agitated Beecher wafting a towel around, as Murphy addresses the inmates about the absence of McManus, saying that McManus has resigned as unit supervisor. The news is greeted with applause and cheers from a number of inmates, while others look concerned, but in the interim Murphy is taking over McManus' post, and he says that nothing is going to change, Adebisi giving him a quiet, yeah that's what you think, before everyone goes about their day. Murphy says that it was Leah who asked him to step up as unit manager, so it's possible that Leo may have told Murphy that McManus resigned rather than being fired, or it could be a case of Murphy sparing his friend's blushes rather than letting the inmates, Adebisi in particular, think that they've got their own way. Beecher approaches Murphy, asking if he's heard any updates about Keller from the hospital, but Murphy brushes him off, saying that they've lost McManus on top of having a major incident, and that Beecher's boyfriend's health isn't on his list of priorities. Beecher tries once more by asking politely, 
but Murphy tells him to go away as we see flashbacks to Keller saying that Beecher was born a bitch as well as their fight. Beecher meets with Saeed, seemingly in an attempt to just talk to someone and make sense of everything, as Saeed says that Beecher was tormented about his part in Andrew Schillinger's death, and that he found comfort by seeking out the arms of Allah. The stumbling block for Saeed, though, something which is a common theme in this episode, is Beecher's relationship with Keller, something which he calls this thing, not even bringing himself to call it a relationship or love, and says that homosexual acts are blasphemous. Beecher says that he knows that, and that he doesn't want to love Keller, but he does, and that he'll take his chances with Allah when that time comes. So this is the first indication that we've had that Beecher either has or is in the process of fully converting to Islam. Something which I don't think came across that way when he went to Saeed for guidance. I always took it as Beecher sampling everything and looking for different perspectives, rather than choosing a specific religion. We get a quick shot of Beecher passing Schillinger in the cafeteria, and I've got to admit that Schillinger is at the very least always entertaining whenever he has the chance to give Beecher some shit, and he certainly makes the most of the limited time he has. Hey Beecher, sorry about what happened to your little butt buddy. Of course knowing that county's kind of he's probably fucked half his nurses and a couple of orderlies by now. Hope he doesn't come back to you with any of them staph infections. Cut to the visiting room where Beecher meets up with his dad, and I really like the look on Harrison's face when he sees Beecher. He's always so happy to see his son. He brings good news about the search for Hank Schillinger, saying they've found him, but that Hank is one screwed up kid. Someone who has a drug dependency as well as being a petty thief, and who even pimps his girlfriend out on occasion. Beecher asks how long it'll be until Hank visits with Schillinger, but that brings its own issue with Hank saying that he won't come unless he gets paid. Beecher tells his father to make the deal, something which Harrison seems reluctant to do at first, but goes along with his son's wish. Although we've only just met him, I really like Harrison as a character. He comes across as so loving of his son, as any parent should, and is willing to do anything for them, even if he doesn't completely agree with them. Down in Genpop, we see Schillinger lining up a shot at the pool table, but before he can take it, much to his annoyance, Ray approaches and tells him that he has a visitor. Making a joke about Ray not being his appointment secretary, Schillinger seems reluctant to leave his pool game until Ray tells him that it's Hank who's come to see him. An overjoyed Schillinger practically skips out of the unit and down to the visiting room where his son is waiting for him. Ray heads in first and speaks with Hank, telling him that Schillinger is on his way but Hank seems more concerned about getting the other half of his money, and how long exactly he has to stay for, saying that he has to go because he's meeting someone. Hank is the epitome of early noughties teenager right here, with his denim battle jacket over a hoodie. The battle jacket is not something I've ever thought of doing, but it's something that I'm coming around to the idea of lately. I did try and identify all the patches that we can see here too, but we only really get a clear shot of two of them. Those being the Crimson Ghost, which first appeared in the 1946 serialised movie of the same name, but has been synonymous with the Misfits since the late 70s, and there's also one of Henry Rollins here, which seems to be from when he was in Black Flag. It looks too late to have been from when he was in State of Alert, but too early to have been a Rollins band one. Hank Schillinger is played by Andrew Barshalon in what is his acting debut. I couldn't find a whole lot else about him, I couldn't even find a birthday for him but he's more famous for his career after Oz, which we'll talk about another time. Right now though, Schillinger is so happy to see his son, 
We've never seen him this happy on the show before, not even when he was torturing Beecher. And he gives Andrew a huge hug. We mentioned last time that it's been a number of years since they last saw each other. Schillinger asks Hank how he's doing, particularly since Andrew's death, with Hank saying that while he does miss him, they had been estranged even before Andrew was sent to Oz, saying that Andrew was hanging with freaks and mentions Andrew's crime, asking what's up with that. Schillinger tells Hank to take a seat because there's so much that he wants to talk to him about, but Hank says that he has to go. Luckily for Schillinger, Ray is still in the room and does just enough of a look to make Hank reconsider leaving, taking a seat and putting a smile firmly back on Schillinger's face. It pains me to admit this, but I really felt for Schillinger for a moment here, especially when the smile drops from his face. Despite everything that he is, and he is a terrible person, it really humanised Schillinger to a degree, and to have that moment of joy nearly cut so short was almost heartbreaking. I've said it before, and I know I'll say it many times more, but J.K. Simmons was so great in this scene. Everything he does, everything he says, is just gold. The joy of seeing Hank the moment his heart nearly rips in half, everything was just completely on point. Great work, J.K. Ray heads down to M-City to let Beecher know how things went, sharing my sentiments about never seeing Schillinger happy before, and that he and Hank have agreed to a second meeting in the future. But Ray's pessimistic about whether or not Hank will show up, something which Beecher says he'll make sure happens. As Ray admits that he finds how much Schillinger truly loves his son to be a bit startling, Beecher asks Ray if he's ever loved someone too much. And there's an awkward pause between them, as obviously Ray has taken his vow of celibacy, so Beecher rephrases the question to ask whether or not it's wrong to love someone too much. After answering that it depends how love manifests itself, Ray gets up to leave, but before he does, he takes a moment to answer Beecher's original question, saying that yes, he has loved someone too much. There's still an element of Ray's backstory that we don't know about. He's spoken before about being sent to Oz as punishment for clashing with the Cardinal under whom he was serving, but I can't recall if we ever got a definitive answer as to what those issues were. That, of course, has led to some fan theories developing over the years, one of which theorises that Ray might be gay, and that being sent to Oz essentially ruined his future career as a priest. B.D. Wong is, of course, an openly gay actor, which may have contributed towards the theory developing, but even so, with what we've seen of Ray on the show, like how he always seems to act sheepish whenever the subject of sex arises, such as the scene in which he visited with Richard Lytalian back in Series 1, or when he was in confession with Sister Pete, perhaps a previous sexual encounter, be that with a male or a female, could be the catalyst that landed Ray where he is now. Also, I mentioned last episode about a scene between Ray and Beecher being a rare interaction, and the same can be said for Ray's scenes with Schillinger in this episode, as I can't think of a specific meeting between the two previously. After an Augustus vignette about how one moment of notoriety can be your obituary's headline, with the projection replaying Beecher hitting Kathy Rockwell as well as mentioning the Charles Van Doren quiz show scandal from the 1950s, we head down to the visiting room once again, where Augustus himself is meeting with his wife, who I'm certain is being played by a different actress from the one we saw back in Series 1. The Charles Van Doren scandal had come back into public consciousness a few years prior to this with the 1994 movie Quiz Show, which despite a poor box office had been well received by critics, 
and nominated for four awards at both the Academy Awards and the Golden Globes. So it would have been a known reference, although six years is probably a bit too long to consider it topical. As Augustus goes to leave the visiting room, he hits the chair of a female visitor's table with his wheelchair, which he apologises for. And as he leaves, he runs into Moby, who's visiting with the same woman, Moby claiming that she's his girlfriend. Augustus leaves proper this time, and Moby heads inside to give his girlfriend, nudge nudge wink wink, a kiss and a hug. Of course, things are not quite what they seem, and she whispers into Moby's ear that the lieutenant is wanting an update, and is pushing for arrests to happen. Continuing the charade, Mabe whispers back to her about how the shooting has brought things to a standstill, as two of the victims were his initial connections, so he's essentially going to have to start over. She tells him to take it slow, with Mobe saying that he doesn't want to spend any more time in Oz than what he has to. So Mobe's girlfriend here, going by the name of Keena, is actually Detective Nancy Mayers, and is played by Stephanie Pope, who I'll talk more about in a future episode, and much like with Lance Reddick as Mobe, I'll refer to her as Keena for ease and continuity. As promised last episode though, Desmond Mobe, aka Detective John Basil, is played by Lance Reddick. Born December 31st, 1962 in Baltimore, Maryland, Lance's first love was music, learning to play piano at a young age as well as studying at Baltimore's Peabody Preparatory Institute and the Walden School in Dublin, New Hampshire. After graduating with a Bachelor of Music degree from the Eastman School of Music at the University of Rochester, Lance relocated to Boston, Massachusetts with hopes of establishing a career in music. Working a number of jobs, including waiting tables, delivering pizzas and newspapers, as well as working as an artist model, Lance was forced to re-examine his career options after a back injury forced him into unemployment, and which led to Lance enrolling at the Yale School of Drama, graduating with a Master of Fine Arts degree in 1991. Lance would make his acting debut on the Broadway stage between May and December of 1993 acting as an understudy to Jeffrey Wright's Belize in the George C. Wolfe-directed Angels in America, as well as appearing off-Broadway in Oz alumni Anne Mira's Afterplay, and also in Shakespeare in the Park's production of Henry V in New York's Central Park. Making his TV debut in 1996 in the second season of New York Undercover, Lance also landed a minor role on UPN's Swift Justice that same year, while in 1997 he was credited for appearances in The Nanny on CBS, as well as the TV movie, What the Deaf Man Heard. Lance would make his film debut in 1998, appearing as Anton Lafarge in Alfonso Cuaron's adaptation of Great Expectations, as well as an uncredited appearance in Godzilla, the third highest grossing film of the year, and closed out 1998 with an appearance in Edward Zwick's The Siege. In 1999, Lance would return to TV appearing in the first season of The West Wing on NBC, while in 2000 he landed his first recurring roles, appearing in three episodes of Falcone on CBS, as well as two episodes of HBO's The Corner, before appearing here on Oz. Back in M-City, the inmates are settling down for the night as Augustus talks to Murbe about missing his wife. He says that he feels like he's starting to lose her, but doesn't think that she's sleeping with anyone, which is a suggestion that comes from Murbe, he just feels as though he's becoming less important. Mobe says that would never happen to himself and Keena, as Augustus continues to ask Mobe questions about his life, asking where Keena is from, Mobe claiming that she's from Washington. Augustus, however, having briefly spoken to Keena, 
thought that he recognised her from somewhere, and asks how long she's lived in the city, which as I've tried to figure out may or may not be New York. Lance Reddick applies one of the best terrified looking faces I've ever seen as he scrambles for an answer, saying that she moved there about six months ago. Taking Mobay at his word, Augustus says that he can't know Keener after all, as a guard bangs on their pod glass to shut them up. The next day, Mobay calls Keener from his receptionist desk asking whether or not she ever had a run-in with Augustus. The look on Mobay's face would suggest that she has, and he tells her about Augustus feeling as though he recognised her at the visit. As a precaution, he tells her not to visit for a while and hangs up the phone, raising one of the main flaws in this undercover operation. If Mobay is working at a desk which allows him to email updates to his commanding officer, why are they sending in his partner for updates as well? And yes, I realise that I've asked that question and it will get answered in a few episodes time, but in storyline terms, her presence puts Mobay at risk, and we've already had one person die in a botched undercover operation on the show. The less the number of people that either know about this operation or are involved in it, the better. Back in M-City, Mobay is hanging with Poet underneath the stairs, talking about how he used to work on the front lines as a drug dealer in his native Jamaica, and that with so many of Poet's men having been killed, maybe a spot has opened up for him to sell. Poet says that he'll speak with some people, and then heads off as Mobay looks over a small packet of drugs. He looks across and sees Poet talking with Adebisi, before locking eyes with Adebisi himself. Later on, Mobay is summoned to the classroom to answer some questions. Mr. Adebisi. Nice island. Jamaica. You've been? I asked the questions. Understood. How is Junior number doing? I know who he is, but we have never danced together. Marco, sorry. Again, I know of him. William Pouches. Him, I don't know at all. That's because I made him up. You know Alam King? Barely. And who do you know? Who can vouch for you? Nesta Parks. Mr. Parks. He's in Ladna. Serving 15 years. You can go now. Give me a chance to prove myself. Go. Boy. Contact Nesta Parks. I want to hear stories about Anu. So I'd be easy with the so-you-know-what's-his-face method of trying to decide whether or not Mabey is legit, as well as getting right up in his grill to try and intimidate him. The sniffing around Mabey's mouth as well, symbolic of Adabizi perhaps sniffing for shit coming out of Mabey's mouth, that was fucking intense. Mabey though does enough to throw Adabizi off the scent for now by not committing to know the names that Adabizi mentions, instead only giving him the name of an established dealer. He isn't quite out of the woods though, as Adebisi obviously has some kind of contact, either on the outside or at the other prison itself, so Mobe needs to tread carefully going forward. Back in the visiting room once again, where Saeed is meeting with Trisha Ross, back for the first time since Series 3, Episode 5. 
They're talking about the trial for the riot lawsuit getting underway that same day. Trisha saying that she plans to attend every day. She feels confident that they'll be successful and that Devlin and the state will have to face facts and accept responsibility for the riot. Saeed chuckles at what she's saying, which takes Trisha back a touch, but he assures her that he isn't laughing at her, but that he was reminiscing about how timid she was when they first met, and that he's pleased to see the changes within her. Trisha tells Saeed that she wants to kiss him, and after a long pause he admits that he wishes they could, something which pisses Trisha off even though she respects it, and she storms out of the visiting room. Back in M-City, Saeed gathers the other inmates involved with the lawsuit to update them with the latest goings-on, but Ryan says they've all seen it on the news and asks when they're going to get their money. Saying that it's not about money, but in fact about culpability, Saeed answers Augustus' question about whether or not they all need to testify, saying that it's unlikely and that Zellman believes that only one of them is necessary to plead the case to the court. Beecher snatches the glory from Saeed of being able to proclaim himself the one to testify, something which sends a reef from the meeting, as Ribado talks about how it's taken so long for the trial to actually get underway, before asking how long it might take a jury to reach a verdict, Saeed thinking it could be a week or so. Ryan cracks wise about Saeed feeling optimistic, as Saeed admits that he is feeling just that, despite also feeling that the US legal system is corrupt, unfair and chaotic. Down at the holding area, Saeed is presented with an orange jumpsuit, something which Zellman tells him is a state requirement for any inmates leaving their facility, but Saeed refuses to wear it because he thinks it will make the jury view him as a criminal, apparently a status that being an inmate at a maximum security prison wouldn't present. Zellman tells him once again that he can't leave Oz without the jumpsuit, even saying that he's already been to the board of prisons to seek a waiver, something which has already been refused. Rather than just swallow his pride for once, Saeed tells Zellman to sue the board, which Zellman says will eat up time in the lawsuit they're already involved with, and that he thought Saeed wanted the trial over with. Saeed, however, wants things done right, which prompts Zellman to promise to file the proper motions as Saeed leaves, not heading to court after all. Saeed can be fucking infuriating at times when he's playing amateur lawyer. I respect that he believes that there is a fair and just system hiding within the law trying to get out, but this whole not wearing the jumpsuit and being viewed as a criminal, come on mate. The jury will be aware of who Saeed is due to previous appearances in the media and how long it's taken to get to trial. It's not going to be a revelation to them come court day. Down in the laundry room, Saeed meets up with Beecher who asks him about being back so soon, Saeed saying that there was a complication. Beecher says what we're all thinking and that there always is a complication with Saeed, and while he believes that Saeed isn't in it for the money, he does think that there's something else involved. Beecher thinks that Saeed secretly wants the case to fail so that he can point the finger of righteous indignation about how the system doesn't work, but if they're successful, then Saeed has nothing to rage against. As Saeed tells him that he won't be made a slave to the laws of the state, Beecher says that's where the two of them are different, and that he loves the law even though it landed him in ours, and that he thanks God for the laws they have, saying that it keeps people like Adebisi, El Cid and Schillinger away from his children. In fact, Beecher feels so strongly about that that he'll tell that to Zellman if he has to, and that he's prepared to testify to the court instead of Saeed. 
Beecher seemingly had to pick another name at random to get the three names there, as he hasn't really had any run-ins with anyone else other than Adebisi right at the start of the show, and has since been intrinsically linked to Schillinger. The rest of the time he's mostly kept out of the other inmates' affairs. Act 2 closes with a news report in which our new newsman gets a name, and shows Beecher in his orange jumpsuit attending court as the other inmates watch on, Saeed feeling the lawsuit slipping away from him. Beecher's testimony of physical abuse by guards at Oswald before and after the riot stunned the jury. Beecher claims that even after the sort team had gained control, prisoners were tortured. This is Kevin Gersten reporting from the courthouse. Act 3 then sees us down in the behind-the-glass section of the visiting room, somewhere which we don't tend to go all that often. I think we've only been there half a dozen times or so in the show's history. Jason Kramer is another returning character this episode, first time we've seen him since Series 3, Episode 7. He's meeting with a Mrs. Lazarus, the actress going uncredited, who has come to visit with Jason and confessed that she doesn't feel as though he received a fair trial due to one of the jurors in his trial making homophobic comments, as well as pressuring the rest of the jury to vote guilty. Meeting with the other gay inmates in the cafeteria, Jason tells them the story, saying that some redneck motherfucker told the rest of the jury, and content warning on this one, this shouldn't take long, this guy's a fag, and all fags should be dead, as well as bullying anyone who wanted to discuss the case as being a fag as well, and as a result Jason was found guilty solely on the fact that he's gay. Kiki looks disgusted while Fiona asks what Jason plans on doing, and I think this is the first time we've actually heard either of these characters speak on the show. Amazing, really, considering that Kiki first appeared in Series 1 while Fiona has been on the show for two full series at this point. Jason thinks that with this new revelation, he might have a shot of getting his verdict overturned or a new trial. Before he can do that, though, he's gonna need some legal counsel and representation, and he seeks out Saeed in the library. Jason respectfully asks whether or not he and Saeed can talk, but Saeed is apprehensive for reasons relating to his faith, something which Jason calls him on, saying that Muslims consider homosexuality an abomination. Despite his religious belief, Saeed answers no when Jason asks whether or not he is prejudiced against him. In fact, he prays every day for Jason and others to find their way to God, but Jason reckons that makes Saeed all the more prejudiced, and that he isn't going around asking Allah to turn him. Cue a very awkward silence and smirk from Saeed, knowing that what Jason is saying is logical, but also knowing that it's probably best to move on from this topic. Saeed asks Jason what it is that he wants, with Jason answering that he wants justice as the scene closes, and I thought this storyline had a bit more airtime, but I must be thinking of another episode. Fade up on death row where Moses is awoken by moaning and groaning sounds and looks across to Shirley's cell to find a silhouette. A sexy silhouette, no less. Shirley clearly going at it with a mystery man. Cut to Leo holding another staff meeting discussing Shirley's upcoming execution. He's holding a file which has three photographs of Shirley on the cover, one of which is a mugshot, which is fine, but the other two don't make any sense as they're quite obviously production stills. In storyline terms, who is meant to have taken these photos and why have they taken them? Explaining that executions tend to bring a lot of undue attention, from the media as well as anti-death penalty protesters, Leo tells the staff that Shirley is to be the first woman executed in the state since 18-something or other, and as a result they're going to be eating more shit than usual. 
What Leo's claiming here about Shirley's execution depends on whether or not he's referring to Shirley's execution method. Assuming that Oz is governed by New York State, which is what I've always assumed to be the case, the last woman to be executed by hanging was Roxolana Druce, who was executed on February 28, 1887 in Herkimer County, New York. The execution wasn't without its faults though, as rather than dropping through a trap door, Miss Druce was propelled upwards by a weighted rope. Due to Miss Druce's small frame, the force of the rope failed to snap her neck, leaving her to die by strangulation. As a result of this botched execution, state officials switched to the electric chair as the state's primary method of execution. The last woman to be executed in the 1800s was Martha M. Place, who was executed on March 20th, 1899 at Sing Sing Prison in Ossining, New York. While at the time of recording, the last woman to be executed in the state was Ethel Rosenberg, who was convicted of crimes relating to spying on behalf of the Soviet Union, and was executed along with her husband Julius, who was also convicted of spying, on June 19th, 1953, again at Sing Sing Prison by the electric chair. Ethel was one of only two women executed by the federal government in the 20th century, the other being Bonnie Hedy in Missouri, who was executed in December 1953. Lepresti suggests that Leo might want to think about giving Death Row a lick of pain if he's planning on allowing the TV cameras in. And with that, Ralph Galeno heads down there with his painting tray. And to be perfectly honest, I don't know what Lepresti's on about here. It doesn't look that bad in this unit. Lepresti knocks on Shirley's bars and she engages flirtatious mode saying good morning to him, as well as Ralph, who she calls a fine gentleman. She asks how Ralph is doing and Ralph tells us all that he was a contractor on the outside, that a housing complex he built collapsed and killed two people, but it wasn't his fault, just in case we missed it last time. After a bit more complaining from Ralph, Lepresti tells him to shut his yap and get on with the painting, allowing Shirley to walk around the unit while Ralph works. Not missing a chance to work her womanly ways, Shirley brushes past Ralph in the doorway of her cell and then goes to talk with Nat next door, who's working on a new dress. Mark Miles chimes in with some disgusting homophobia, but Nat is unfazed by it and talks about how Mark murdered his family, and we see the crime flashback of Mark Miles, which sees him murder not one, but two of his families, although he was only officially convicted of the second. I especially liked the first-person perspective while he was holding the shotgun in this flashback, or Doom Cam as I'm calling it. Prisoner number 97M573, Mark Miles. Convicted July 10th, 1997. Three counts of murder in the first degree. Sentence, death. So Mark Miles is played by Michael Quill. Michael's first acting roles came while appearing in various productions at the Williamstown Theatre Festival in 1980 where he appeared in the front page along with Oz alumni Edward Herman and Jelko Ivanic, as well as appearing with George Morphogen in Serrano de Bergerac and The Cherry Orchard, the latter of which also featured Austin Pendleton. Michael would return to the festival the following year, appearing again with Edward Herman in Summerfolk, as well as with George Morphogen in The Greeks. Making his TV debut in 1981 on Standing Room Only, Michael's first recurring role came in 1984 in the miniseries The Last Days of Pompeii, while in 1986 he was credited on 12 episodes of From the Top in the role of Wayne Lynn, where he also received a soundtrack credit as a performer on the Caretaker song. During the 90s, Michael would appear in minor roles on films such as Photographer in 1993's Calendar Girl, 
a security guard in I Love Trouble in 1994, while on TV he appeared during the debut season of The Cosby Mysteries in the episode One Day at a Time, appearing alongside Oz co-stars Austin Pendleton and Rita Marina, as well as <laughs> Bill Cosby. In 1998, Michael appeared on TV in The Osiris Chronicles, while in 2000 he made his writing debut on an episode of Twice in a Lifetime, before appearing here on Oz. Charlie says that Michael killing both of his families makes her look like an amateur, as he tells her about spending ten years in the Connolly Institute for the first killings, for which Moses calls him a psychopath. Mark brings a touch of racism to proceedings, which understandably gets a rise out of Moses, but Shirley tells them to calm down, or to at least wait until she's dead. She heads over to Moses' cell and they discuss the execution date being two weeks away, Moses asking whether or not that's fucking with her head. Shirley, though, tells him no, and that after the trial, all the appeals, the miscarriage, if it was indeed a miscarriage, she's ready to go and meet her maker, although she isn't sure if he's ready to meet her. Continuing to flirt with Moses, she says that he's very attractive when he smiles, Moses bringing up his skin colour as a partial stumbling block. Shirley admits to having had her prejudices, but now that she's so close to the end, she sees all of them as the same as she starts to caress Moses' arm saying they all have the same needs and desires, moving closer to his lips as she speaks. Right before she can kiss Moses, though, Mark gets Lepresti's attention, and he breaks up the romantic tryst, and leads Shirley back to her cell now that Ralph has finished painting. Time from Ralph entering to saying that he finished? 2 minutes 8 seconds. That, by any standard, is bloody quick, especially when I think back to how long it took me last time I redecorated. Ralph warns Shirley to be careful of the paint fumes as she might get high as we close out Act 3. You set the date yet? Two weeks. I don't fuck with your head? No. After all the bullshit, the trial, the appeals, the miscarriage, I'm ready to go. I am ready to meet my maker. Cause <sighs> whether he's ready for the likes of me is another story. When you smile, you are a very attractive man. For a nigger? I admit, I've had my prejudices. But now that I am so close to the end, I see that all of us is the same. Same needs. Same desires. Yo, Lepresti! Hey, 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 what's going on here? A little fraternization. That is not on the goddamn program. Done. Good. Get inside. <clears throat> Careful, the fumes might get high. I'm looking forward to it. Act 4 gets underway in the staff room with Pete running into Gloria. After seeing Preston's parents at dinner the previous night, which by her own admission is for the first time in a while, Gloria says that she mentioned about them being involved in the victim-offender interaction program. Patricia, Preston's mother, seemed more open to the idea than his father Lars, with Pete offering to give them a call to discuss it further. No need for that though, as Gloria apparently already did enough to convince them to take part, even though Gloria admits to having a strained relationship with them throughout her marriage to Preston due to her being Latina, and that Patricia kept saying to her, It's not like we blame you, Gloria and that deep down they do, but they're too wasp to be confrontational, but she blames herself too to some degree. 
Weird how after not knowing the term wasp before, it's now come up again. In fact, it's come up a few times more than I remember. So it's now down to Pete to get the O'Reilly brothers involved, and she meets with both of them in her office. She asks Cyril whether or not he understands that he may have to talk to the parents and wife of the person that he killed. Cyril saying yes, he understands, and that he likes Dr. Nathan. So Cyril seems aware of what this process is going to involve. Ryan may have clued him in on that already off-screen, but I'd like to think that Cyril is a bit more with it than he's given credit for. Pete asks what he might want to talk about in the meeting, Cyril saying that he wants to be their friend, which nearly brings Pete to tears, but she pulls herself together and starts to ask Ryan what he's looking to get out of the experience. But he says that they're not there for him, and this is all to cure Cyril of his nightmares. Pete, however, says they're there to help Ryan too, and that he might want to talk about his cancer diagnosis and how frightened he was, and how he developed feelings for Gloria as a result of their kindness, which ultimately led to Cyril committing murder. Leaning forwards, Ryan tells Pete that he still loves Gloria, something which will never go away, as we cut to Ryan in his pod, making the decision to injure his hand once more by opening up the still healing wound by smashing it on the corner of the metal sink. With his hand bleeding a gusher once more, Ryan is taken to the hospital where the nurse, played by Tessel Williams, tells him that she doesn't understand why it's still bleeding. As Ryan suggests that Gloria take a look at his hand, she informs him that Gloria isn't in fact there, and that she'll be gone for a few hours, but Dr. Prostopnik might be around. A good callback to previous characters in the Oz universe there, next time Ryan maybe check that Gloria is going to be around before you slice your hand open again. Cut back to Pete's office where Gloria introduces her to Patricia and Lars Nathan, played by Dana Ivey and John McMartin respectively, two more veterans of the Broadway stage. Born August 12th, 1941 in Atlanta, Georgia, Dana's parents were both teachers, her mother, Mary Nell Santa Croce, teaching acting at Georgia State University, while her father was a physics professor at Georgia Tech, who later worked for the Atomic Energy Commission. Dana earned her undergraduate degree from Rollins College in Winter Park, Florida, and is another member of the Ozcast to have received a Fulbright grant, studying at London's Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. Following in her parents' footsteps, Dana served as director of drama tech at Georgia Tech between 1974 and 1977, before moving to New York in the late 70s, making her TV debut in 1978, appearing in the soap opera Search for Tomorrow. In 1981, Dana made her Broadway debut appearing in Macbeth at the Vivian Beaumont Theatre, appearing with Maureen Anderman, Philip Anglin, and Kelsey Grammer, and reprised her role the following year in the play's TV adaptation. Dana's first major Broadway role came playing Monica Reed in Present Laughter, which ran at the Circle in the Square Theatre between July 15, 1982 and January 2, 1983, for which Dana received a Clarence Derwent Award for Outstanding Featured Actress in a Play, as well as receiving a Drama Desk Award nomination, and won an Obie Award for her appearance in Quatermain's Terms at New York's Playhouse 91. Dana's success on Broadway continued with appearances in Heartbreak House from December 3rd, 1983 to February 5th, 1984 at the Circle in the Square, and Sunday in the Park with George at the Booth Theatre from May 2nd, 1984 to October 13th, 1985. Alongside her role in Sunday in the Park with George, Dana also earned credits that year for Pack of Lies at the Royale Theatre, as well as appearing in The Marriage of Figaro at Circle in the Square 
while also making a film debut in Joe Dante's Explorers, as well as appearing in Steven Spielberg's The Colour Purple, while in 1986 she earned her first recurring TV role, appearing as Eleanor Standard in 22 episodes of Easy Street on NBC, although the show was cancelled after one season. In 1987, Dana received her third Drama Desk Award nomination and her second Obie Award win for her appearance as Daisy Worthen in Driving Miss Daisy at the Playwrights Horizon Studio Theatre, starring alongside Morgan Freeman. Alongside her Broadway career, Dana earned numerous film credits in the late 1980s and early 1990s, with appearances in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, The Addams Family and its sequel Addams Family Values, Home Alone 2 Lost in New York, and also earned TV credits by becoming another member of the Ozcast to appear in the short-lived BL Striker, as well as appearing in the 1993 TV movie, Class of 61. In 1995, along with appearances on film in The Scarlet Letter and Sabrina, Dana returned to the Broadway stage, appearing as a replacement to Eileen Atkins in Indiscretions at the Ethel Barrymore Theatre for the show's final month, starring alongside Roger Rees, Kathleen Turner, Jude Law, and Cynthia Nixon. Dana earned further Drama Desk Award nominations in 1997 for appearances in Sex and Longing at the Court Theatre, and The Last Night of Ballyhoo at the Helen Hayes Theatre, starring alongside Oz co-star Aya Barakis, as well as joining the list of Oz actors to have appeared on Frasier, appearing in the show's fourth season in the episode Three Days of the Condor, the same episode to feature Oz alumni Austin Pendleton. In 1999, Dana earned credits for the films Mumford and Walking Across Egypt, before returning to the Broadway stage at the end of the year as Cynthia Archibald in the Michael Langham-directed Waiting in the Wings at the Walter Kerr Theatre, later transferring to the Eugene O'Neill Theatre until March 28, 2000, before appearing here on Oz. I'll introduce John McMartin on the next episode because he also has an extensive Broadway career to cover, but for now the Nathans sit down to discuss the interaction with Pete. When Gloria asked us about coming here, I have to admit I was skeptical. I'm not sure what good it'll do, bringing up all those feelings again. The bottom line, Lars, is that by facing the men responsible for your son's death, you have the opportunity to express things you might not otherwise get to say. That's what I told him. Right. So, from now until then, we'll have a series of conversations to help prepare you for meeting the O'Reilly brothers. Now, at times, the process might seem slow, frustrating, even counterproductive. We can drop out at any time. Yes, but ultimately, the experience can be very satisfying. Let's get started. What's the single most important thing you want to ask Cyril and Ryan? Why did you murder my baby? Back at MC, Ryan finishes up a phone call and scribbles down something on the notepad and goes to pass it to Tony Masters. But he pulls the old fake out and pulls the paper back away. Nothing really much to say about that, I just thought it was funny. Ryan joins up with Cyril, who asks Ryan why he uses the payphones instead of using a cell phone. Which is a really jarring term for me to use, because here in the UK we call them mobiles and it just feels odd calling them something else. Ryan tells Cyril that cells are illegal in Oz, with Cyril asking why does the man who talks funny have one? And I love the idea that in Cyril's mind you either talk normal or you talk funny, and that he hasn't got a grasp of what accents are. Ryan asks who he means as Cyril motions towards Nikolai, 
saying that he saw him talking on it and mutters some generic-sounding Russian. Sensing an opportunity to kickstart another one of his schemes, Ryan tells Cyril to wait there and goes to talk with Nikolai, who's just sat down to read a book in his pod. Pretending to be all friendly, Nikolai even getting in a sarcastic comment about it always being a pleasure to see him, Ryan says that a little bird has told him a secret and he just popped in to see if it's true or not, and point blank asks Nikolai if he has a cell phone, which Nikolai denies. Admitting that you get what you deserve by listening to little birdies, Ryan softly threatens Nikolai about being able to borrow the cell should he ever have one, Nikolai one-upping Ryan in the cunning department by saying that if he had one, he might rent it to Ryan, but denies having the phone once again. Ryan says that he believes him, and that the two of them have a certain type of trust as Ryan leaves, apologising for disturbing Nikolai's reading. This conversation plays out as a tight two-shot on both men's faces, Ryan in the background and Nikolai in the foreground, Indicative of these two manipulators being in each other's heads and playing a bit of mental chess. Great stuff here. Cut to the kitchen where it's lunchtime and Ryan is giving Nikolai a mountain of mashed potato and telling him to eat hearty. Having piled Nikolai's food high, Ryan tells Chucky that he needs to get Cyril back to M-City because he's feeling sick. Chucky eventually allowing the brothers to leave rather than Cyril blowing chunks in the salad bowl. Of course, this is all a ruse in order to get back to M-City so that Ryan can search Nikolai's pod for the phone, Cyril keeping lookout on the outside as he does. Ryan, though, has no joy in finding the phone, checking under the mattress as well as the bathroom mirror, so this plan seems to have been a bit of a bust, and we cut to Ryan taking a shower. Nikolai enters to take a shower of his own, and says to Ryan, Couldn't find it, could you? As they go back and forth about Nikolai having or not having a cell phone the pair of them getting philosophical asking how could they look for something which doesn't exist. Later on, Ryan heads to Ralph's pod, passing Jazz on the way, Evan Seinfeld having lost a ton of weight between series. Biohazard only had a handful of tour dates at the end of 1999 and performed no shows in the first half of 2000, which allowed for Evan to really hit the gym prior to filming. He looks great for having done so. Heading inside, Ryan asks how Ralph is doing, but Ralph isn't having any of Ryan's being-friendly routine. Climbing up on the bed to talk with Ralph, complaining that the mattress sucks, which he should really know already because he has the same type, Ryan talks about how it can be hard to adjust to life in Oz without life's luxuries, such as sex, a good cigar, a bottle of wine, and then just casually drops in about a cell phone, which Ralph reacts to, saying that he didn't know that cell phones weren't allowed, that Nikolai set him straight, mispronouncing his name as Stankolowski. Asking if Ralph grew up in America, Ryan asks him, Growing up, who was the one enemy we had? The one country we never trusted? Taking his time to think about it, Ralph finally answers that it was the Russians, as Ryan has to hold his hand a little more to get him to realise that Nikolai is Russian, and says that Nikolai was telling the truth about them not being allowed, but that he's kept it for himself. In the second half of the 20th century, Russian-American relations were very much strained due to the Cold War, which I'll come back to in a few minutes, and Russia, or the Soviet Union as it was, were the go-to bad guys in a number of movies such as Doctor Strangelove, From Russia With Love, Ice Station Zebra, Rocky IV, No Way Out, Goldeneye, Air Force One to name just a few, 
as well as the infamous ice hockey final known as the Miracle on Ice between the two nations at the 1980 Winter Olympics, the Soviets being portrayed as the villains at the event being held in Lake Placid, New York. Proving that he believes anything that anyone tells him, even though what Ryan's telling him is the truth, Ryan heads out to talk with Nikolai, who he runs into in the computer room. Demanding his cell phone back, Ralph gets in Nikolai's face, but Nikolai tells him that he doesn't just carry it around with him, and that if he wants it back he'll have to retrieve it from the hiding place, which he says will take some time. Ralph takes Nikolai at his word because he's a fucking idiot, but he leaves telling Nikolai that he wants the phone back by lights out. Sensing a problem, Nikolai visits with Chucky in his pod, showing his respect by still referring to him as Mr. Pancamo. He asks Chucky whether or not Ralph is a friend of his, the implication being obvious as to what Nikolai is referring, but Chucky says that he and Ralph don't associate. With that in mind, Nikolai asks if Ralph were to say, become ill or was hurt in an accident, but before he can finish, Chucky says that he doesn't care if that motherfucker lives or dies. Nikolai gives a respectful part nod, part bow to Chucky as he leaves the pod, having gotten the answer that he was looking for. We've seen this a couple of times between Chucky and Nikolai, this respect between the two of them, although I'd probably say it's more weighted towards Nikolai showing the respect than Chucky reciprocating. While they may be part of criminal organisations from different countries, the goals are essentially the same, and I doubt that Chucky would be unwilling to work with Nikolai if there was business to be done. Even though Ralph is a total non-entity to Chucky, Nikolai going to him and being respectful portrays him as being loyal and could lead to them forming a partnership in the future. And don't forget it was Nikolai that went to Chucky previously about Ryan drugging him during the boxing, so remaining in Chucky's good graces benefits Nikolai in the long run. One man with loyalty only to himself, however, is Jazz, who Ryan spots talking with Nikolai in the lunch line. Before Ryan can make up another excuse to get out of the kitchen, though, Chucky tells him that he isn't going anywhere, and if he complains, he'll transfer Ryan out to make ladies' dresses. Something which has been mentioned a couple of times, but I think we only ever saw the factory back in episode one. Jazz tells Nikolai that he's got himself a deal, as Nikolai grabs his lunch tray, and we cut to the stairwell where the bikers are holding down Ralph as Jazz prepares a syringe of heroin injecting Ralph in the tongue, leading to an overdose in one of the more brutal killings that we've seen on camera so far. Fade back to M-City where Ryan goes to try and find Ralph, but his pod is empty as Ryan puts two and two together, smacking the glass with his hand. He passes Nikolai who tells Ryan that Ralph went for a walk with Hoyt. Knowing full well what Nikolai means, Ryan brushes past him, but Nikolai smiles to himself, knowing that he's safe for now. Back in the stairwell, Gloria checks an obviously dead Ralph for a pulse for some reason as Leo picks up the syringe, thereby not only contaminating a crime scene, but putting his fingerprints all over the murder weapon and thus implicating himself as a suspect. Seriously, the pair of them having an absolute shocker right there. Down in the laundry room, Nikolai is reading a Russian newspaper, or a newspaper with at least one Russian page, when Ryan approaches, saying that Nikolai played this one well having covered all the bases, kept his hands clean, and because no one else knows about the cell phone, no one would suspect him. Ryan admits that he might have underestimated Nikolai on this occasion, something which he doesn't normally do, and while they could continue on and go to war, cockily saying that he would win in the end, why not call the troops now and work together, referencing detente. 
a French term used to describe the relaxation of strained relations by verbal communication. Originating around 1912 during a reduction in tensions between France and Germany, the term tends to be used when referring to a period of the Cold War between 1969 and 1974 during the Nixon administration, although talk of détente was ended in 1979 following the invasion of Afghanistan by the Soviet Union. In more recent years, the term has also been used when referring to the Cuban Thaw, which resulted in the restoring of diplomatic relations between the US and Cuba in 2015 during the Obama administration. Ryan offers a handshake which Nikolai eventually accepts as the scene closes, and without sounding like I'm making a Cold War joke, something tells me that despite what we're seeing here on the surface, this relationship remains a little frosty. In the hospital ward, Gloria is with inmate Carlos Martinez, played by Carlos Leon. Born July 10th, 1966 in Havana, Cuba, Carlos worked as a personal trainer prior to pursuing a career in acting, and made his debut in 1996 appearing in the second season of Nash Bridges, playing the part of Freddy for three episodes. Away from the screen, Carlos was, and probably still is, best known for being in a romantic relationship with Madonna between 1995 and 1997, from which he has a daughter named Lourdes. Appearing mostly in minor roles, Carlos is credited for movies including The Replacement Killers and The Big Lebowski, as well as on TV in the pilot episode of The Strip, before appearing here on Oz. He and Gloria are speaking to each other in Spanish, and once again the other language subtitles trick has let me down here, but I can't imagine that it's anything overly important. Gloria heads over to check on Miguel, who's either just waking up for the first time, or is still a bit out of it, asking where he is as we get a flashback to him and Bevel Aqua being stabbed by Giles. Miguel tells her that he promised himself that he wouldn't get stuck again, this of course being the second time on the show that Miguel has been stabbed, and comments on Giles being the one to get him as he looks down to see his hands in the bed's restraints, which Gloria explains is standard procedure for patients from solitary. Over in M-City, Chico heads over to El Cid, who tells him not to disappoint him again, but Chico informs him that Miguel is still alive. However, he also informs El Cid that Carlos is in the bed next to Miguel's, so is in prime position to kill him, but he's having trouble getting a weapon. El Cid tells Chico to get the job done, or else he's going to find himself a new lieutenant. I loved how El Cid can't even be bothered to look Chico in the eyes anymore, even with Chico right next to him. Clearly, his patience is starting to wear thin. Back in his pod, Chico gets the signal from one of the other Latino inmates that the coast is clear, and he grabs a shank from inside one of the foam ceiling tiles, which has got to be one of the biggest design flaws Oz has, especially post-riot. Never mind digging your way out, I'm surprised someone hasn't tried to escape through the ceiling vents or something. Back in the hospital, Boost Mallies is having a great time mopping the floor while singing his little song and busting out some dance moves, when he sees Miguel in his bed, and obviously these two haven't seen each other for quite some time. Miguel asks Boost Mallies how M-City is doing, and Boost Mallies admits that right now it's quite scary, and that he's in constant fear. As Miguel inquires as to what Boost Mallies is going to do, Boost Mallies leans in and tells Miguel that he's almost finished digging another tunnel. Miguel calls him a crazy fuck, but Boosmalis says that if he calls him that tomorrow, he'll be saying that to his backside and gets back to his singing and dancing. We get a few shots of Chico passing off the shank to another inmate who gets the weapon to Carlos, hiding it underneath the lid of his lunch tray. 
And then we get Carlos' crime flashback, which sees him smacking an old man in the back of the head with a tire iron before killing the old man's wife. And he's convicted of two counts of murder in the first degree, and sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Another inmate escaping the death penalty for storyline reasons. Once night has fallen, Carlos creeps out of his bed and attempts to kill Miguel. He makes the mistake of leaving his hand too close to Miguel's hand in the restraints, though, allowing for Miguel to grab it and call for help. Claire enters the fray with other officers and tells Carlos to drop the shank, but he tries to attack Claire instead. He doesn't get far, though, before he's restrained by another seer, with Claire getting in a good whack in the face. Chico has the unenviable task of once again informing El Cid that Miguel lives to fight another day, as Murphy asks for the count to be carried out. Menio calls out a few inmates' numbers before getting to Boos Malas, who's nowhere to be found. Murphy shouts down to Rebido, asking him where Boos Malas is, but Rebido says that he doesn't know. Not buying his claims, saying that Rebido and Boos Malas are joined at the brain, Murphy asks him again, but Rebido tells him that he honestly doesn't know. Checking the work log, Murphy heads down to the hospital to check if Boos Malas is still there as the other inmates in M-City sing Where Are You to No Tune in particular. And there's a great shot of Beecher with a sly look on his face. He's already worked out what's happened. In the hospital ward, Murphy checks a cleaning storage cupboard and finds a hole in the back corner and calls for help over the radio. And he pops his head into the hole to check it out. Something about that made me chuckle much more than it should. I just really liked how his head just popped down. Gloria heads into the ward to conduct her own checks and notices something odd about Miguel's bed. She pulls back the covers to find that Miguel has gone, using the tried-and-tested make-a-body-out-of-pillows method, as Murphy sounds the alarm. We get one last Augustus vignette, projecting a skull onto his white sheet in a really cool visual, talking about the mark we leave behind when we die to close out the episode. Ultimately, I guess it don't matter what they write in your obituary, because you ain't going to be around to read it. Newsprint fades, paper turns to pulp. The mark you leave behind has to be deeper. The mark you leave behind has to be on another person's soul. So there you go, Series 4, Episode 2, Obituaries. Even though the action was scaled back considerably this time round, I enjoyed this episode a lot more than the series opener. Everyone in this episode just seemed to have a bit more direction this time. Adebisi's plan is starting to gain momentum now that McManus is gone from M-City, Leo having been made to make some tough decisions, Pete gets to try again with a victim offender program by attempting to bring five people together and work through their issues, Mobe is skating on thin ice, and Saeed stands to alienate himself from the other inmates involved with the riot lawsuit because he's just too damn proud. After a bit of a cooling off period in the second half of Series 3, Nikolai is back in action continuing his feud with Ryan, Jazz being a successful hired goon this time round was a welcome change of pace which gave us one of the show's more brutal but ultimately memorable killings, and even Schillinger got a rare moment of sympathy when his son tried to bail out quickly on their visit. I also really liked the use of Augustus' monologues in this episode, and the use of projections looked really cool, especially that last one with a skull. Minor criticisms for the episode would be that Ryan somehow just knowing to go to Ralph about the cell phone seemed to come a bit out of nowhere. It probably worked out that the phone must have been brought in by one of the newbies, but you could have easily had him reach that conclusion with a quick scene, or even just a line of dialogue somewhere. 
Beach's feelings towards Keller seem to go back and forth far too easily. One minute he hates him, one minute he doesn't. Which, yeah, I get that he's trying to find answers to complicated questions and feelings, but he seems to be chopping and changing far too often at the moment. Lastly, I feel like they could have maybe built up Boost Malley's escaping through a new tunnel, seemingly with Miguel in tow, over a few episodes, but the reason for that playing out as it did most likely lies behind the scenes, which I'll talk more about another time. Overall, though, a much better episode this time round. Get the fuck out of my office. Two deleted scenes to speak of this time, the first of which sees Saeed meeting with Leo and Murphy to discuss taking on Jason Kramer's case. Saeed starts off by saying, as per our agreement, I'm informing you that I'm taking on another prisoner's case. I don't know if this is a case of me not remembering it, but I've no idea what he's referring to here with this so-called agreement that he has with Leo. Admitting that he already heard about it, Leo asks whether or not Saeed already has enough going on with the riot lawsuit, but Saeed says there is time for everything, especially in ours. Saying that he's baffled by the whole thing, Murphy asks Saeed whether or not he thinks Jason is innocent, to which Saeed tells him no. Murphy follows up by asking if that's the case, does Saeed want a guilty man to go free? But Saeed says that he wants every man, even the guilty ones, to have the fair trial that they're all promised. Saeed admits that the evidence in Jason's case won't change, but he deserves to have a jury who are blind to his sexual orientation and judge him on the facts and nothing else. Murphy tells him that by pursuing the case, Saeed is going to spend a lot of time and money only to go around in a circle. After asking whether or not Murphy wants him to go in a straight line, Saeed reactivates his soundbite mode saying that lines end, whereas a circle never does. The scene closes with Murphy cracking wise about Saeed going down on them, which gets a little smile out of Saeed. The second scene sees Gloria informing Miguel that Carlos has been transferred to solitary following the attempted murder the previous night, Miguel hoping that Carlos has ended up in his old cell. Gloria leaves and Boost Malas comes round once again mopping the floor, and Miguel beckons him over and asks Boost Malas to loosen his restraints and tells him that he's going with him tonight, something which doesn't seem to bother Boost Malas, who goes back to his cleaning. Neither scene seemed particularly important, in fact the first one makes Saeed look a bit of a hypocrite considering that he tried to avoid Jason completely based on his views of homosexuality, while the second one would have spoilt the unveiling of Miguel no longer being in his bed in the episode's closing moments, so the right choice to cut these two scenes, I feel. With a death toll of two for this episode, including the unseen Lou Raff, it's time to say goodbye to Dominic Lombardozzi, aka Ralph Galino. Post Oz, Dominic has been a constant presence on both TV and in film, with appearances in movies such as Phone Booth, SWAT, Freedom Land, Public Enemies, The Gambler, Bridge of Spies, and The Irishman, with his most recent credit coming in the 2020 movie, The King of Staten Island. Dominic is more known for his TV work though, earning credits in 2001 for NYPD Blue, as well as the TV movie 61, while in 2002 he landed his most famous role, starring as detective and later sergeant Thomas Herc Hawk on HBO's The Wire, appearing in 51 episodes until the show's conclusion in 2008. Following the success of The Wire, Dominic landed a leading role in Breakout Kings on the A&E Network, starring as Ray Sancanelli for two seasons until the show's cancellation. Between 2013 and 2014, he appeared in 13 episodes of HBO's Boardwalk Empire, appearing as Ralph Capone, 
while between 2015 and 2017 he appeared in 43 episodes of Fox police drama Rosewood. In 2018, Dominic landed the recurring role of Sebastian Nuzo on CBS revival of Magnum P.I., as well as receiving recurring roles on Showtime's Ray Donovan, Power on Stars, with his latest TV credits coming in 2019 for four episodes of HBO's The Deuce, as well as the miniseries Mrs. Fletcher, which also aired on HBO. At the time of recording, his next movie appearance is listed as being in the Eddie Huang-directed Boogie, listed as completed and awaiting release. Guest director Kenneth Fink has continued to work as a director on TV, joining the CSI franchise at the end of 2000, where he went on to earn two writing credits and 51 directing credits, as well as serving as a producer between 2002 and 2005, a supervising producer between 2005 and 2006, a co-executive producer between 2006 and 2007, and finally an executive producer between 2007 and 2010. As well as directing single episodes of shows such as Fringe, Body of Proof, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. as well as reuniting with Dominic Lombardozzi on an episode of Rosewood, Kenneth has directed multiple episodes of shows such as Nikita on the CW Network, ABC's Revenge, Person of Interest on CBS, The Expanse on Sci-Fi, and between 2015 and 2019 directed four episodes of Gotham on Fox, reuniting with B.D. Wong in the 2019 episode, Legend of the Dark Knight, I Am Bane. His latest directing credits came in 2019 for episodes of the relaunch versions of Dynasty and Charmed, both of which aired on the CW Network. My episode MVP was a little bit easier to call this time round due to everyone having a bit more to do. Boosmalis could have been in with a shot for seemingly allowing Miguel to escape with him, but other than a brief sighting early on, he only turned up right towards the end, and Murphy was also a close contender, trying to maintain order in M-City after being installed as interim unit supervisor at short notice. However, I'm going to give the MVP award to Nikolai Stanislavski for his escapades involving the cell phone. Following his introduction on the show, there were times where I called Nikolai nothing more than a compulsive liar, but he's always had a cunning side to him as well, especially when it comes to his battle of wits with Ryan. Here, though, he had to act quickly not only to hold Ryan at bay, but eliminate the potential threat of Ralph going to the Warden and snitching on him for being in possession of a cell phone, something which could have landed him in a different unit, or with an extra conviction adding to his time in Oz. While Jazz might be a man who can be bought by pretty much anyone, going to Chucky like he did will have raised Nikolai's status with M-City's resident mob leader, strengthening an already stable relationship. So for those reasons, Nikolai wins the episode MVP. If you need to catch up on any episodes of the podcast, you can do so by heading on over to Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast, Castbox, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts from. There you will find the first three series of Inside Oz, as well as what we've covered in Series 4 so far, and you'll also find the Outside Oz bonus episodes. Subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode, leave a five-star review wherever you can to help with exposure for the podcast, and if you have any Oz-related or non-related questions or comments, you can get in touch with the show by emailing insideozpodcast at gmail.com, or on social media on both Instagram and Twitter by following the handle at InsideOzPodcast. Next time on Inside Oz, we're heading to the Capitol building, but rather than storming the place, we're going to do things democratically as we pass Series 4, Episode 3, The Bill of Wrongs, in which Leo finds out how Adam Easy came to be in possession of the gun, the O'Reillys meet with the Nathans, 
There are changes in store for the Latino gang, and the next horrifying chapter of the Schillinger Beecher feud is written. All of this and more, but until then, I have been Neil Thompson, and I will catch you on the next episode of Inside Oz, the original Oz Review podcast. Catch you later, everyone. It's a long, long wait while I'm sitting in committee, but I know I'll be a law someday, at least I hope and pray that I will, but today I am still just a bill.